In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Well, good evening, everybody. My name's John Forsyth, the vicar at St Jude's. And one of the strange things about being a vicar is seeing people freak out when they realise you're a vicar. Uh, might be talking to someone in the street or a cafe or somewhere and they kind of get round to, well, what do you do, John? I'm a vicar, I'm a minister at a church. And there's this awkward moment of silence and I know exactly what they're thinking. First of all, they're thinking, have I sworn in the last five minutes in front of this guy? <laughs> and secondly, they're thinking, and I say this to me, oh, you're not kind of what I expected a vicar to be like. Uh, and not always, but often people think either the vicar of Dibley uh, which is kind of a weird English thing, or I should be some 85-year-old man playing the organ all the time. Uh, that's their picture of a vicar. In other words, they have a concept in their mind uh, of what they think something is, and when they meet it in reality, uh, hopefully, uh, they're, they're pleasantly surprised. <laughs> in other words, reality and, and concept are very different things. And when I often speak to people and they discover I'm a vicar, a senior senior minister, they're often happy to talk about God. And because most people, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, have at least a concept of God or what they would like God to be like. 
And often it can be perhaps a benign spirituality, a God who is safe, not too many demands on my life, but is, is kind of there to help out when, when needed. A kind of like a rich uncle who has my best interest at heart and is, is always happy to help out when needed. But when we come to Isaiah 6, what we see is something fundamentally different. To have a genuine encounter with God, not just a concept, but an encounter with God is not, to use the language of our time, a safe space. In fact, it is the most life-changing moment there is. It is a life-shaking moment to have an encounter with the God of the universe. And that's what we have before us in Isaiah chapter 6. So it'd be great if you do have your Bible open. Uh, uh, Fiona's very helpfully given her, you her page number, so uh, you can't be too close to read her Bible, so it'd be good to have your own or have your app open. And we read in the very first verse, to give us a bit of context here, that this is occurring in the year that King Uzziah has died. King Isaiah, by the way, had been king for a long time, about 52 years. That's a a pretty good innings. Uh, And he actually began as a good king. Even though God's people were declining, there seemed to be a bit of hope in this King Isaiah. Maybe, he just maybe, he would lead his people, lead God's people in the right direction. And if you want to read his story, you can in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. He sought God, God made him prosper. But as the king Isaiah grew strong, he grew proud. And so God humbled him with leprosy. And you'll like this bit, he spent the rest of his reign in strict quarantine. There you go. The Bible is relevant and up to date. They were shutting the borders back then in ancient Israel. But the sad truth of the matter was that the long decline of God's people Israel is now echoed in their king in his long, slow decline. And now it would seem that all human hopes for God's people have come to an end. The great king who seemed to promise so much has declined and died. And it's at this moment that Isaiah has a vision of God in the temple. He has an encounter with the creator of the universe. And what does it mean? Well, it means at least four things as we look at these verses together. Firstly, we'll see that Isaiah is shaken by the glory of God. Shaken by the glory of God. Secondly, He is humbled and recognises and renounces his sinfulness. Thirdly, he radically and unexpectedly receives grace. And fourthly, he is ready to serve. We'll look at each of those uh, four points. Firstly, we see that Isaiah is shaken by God's glory and particularly we'll see this in the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 6. Notice he has a vision of God and encounter with God in the temple but notice firstly what Isaiah doesn't describe. He doesn't actually describe what God looks like. Now instead notice that what he describes 
is the totally overwhelming nature of God's character. That is what he is struck by when he comes into the presence of God in the temple. Firstly, he's struck by God's kingly rule. Verse 1, I saw the Lord high and exalted. He was seated on a throne. That's where kings sit. And the train of his robe filled the temple. That's how huge he is. And the temple, by the way, is not a small building. And at the end of verse 5, what does Isaiah say? He says, well, my eyes have seen the king, not just a king, but the king, the Lord Almighty. And you'll notice throughout this reading, if you've got eagle eyes, early on he says he sees the Lord in verse 1, where it's the and Lord is capital L and regular characters O-R-D, lowercase. But here in verse 5 it is the Lord, where it's a capital L, and then capitals, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's actually a different word. The first word, Lord, is kind of like Lord and God. It's a simple, not a simple word, but, but here this is the word Yahweh, God's revealed name. So he's saying, I've actually seen the God of Israel, the king of his people. Secondly, notice that this God is terrifyingly powerful. He is called the Lord Almighty. And the actual original phrase is, if you've got a ye old-fashioned Bible, is the Lord of hosts, uh, which has nothing to do with hospitality. God isn't delivering uh, scones and cups of tea. The Lord of hosts, it means to be the commander of a great and powerful army. They've kind of got those images of all the troops marching past with their missiles on the tanks. That's the kind of picture we have here. It is the Lord God commanding an army ready for action to conquer and lead where he says. It's a picture of almighty power. And thirdly, in this vision, God is terrifyingly holy. Now the word holy at its very base level, means separate, but it means more than that. It means incomparably brilliant and beautiful and utterly unlike anything else. And we have this kind of extraordinary picture in verse 2 where we have these seraphim, these strange heavenly winged creatures, each with six wings, very much unlike, you know how there's angels on your toilet paper where they've got the little bow and arrow and they're fat babies with wings? They're not scary. These angels are terrifying. They have two wings, they cover their faces, and two they cover their feet, and with two they're flying. And as they do so, they call out again and again and again, not just holy, but holy. Holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, when you want to really emphasize something, you repeat it. You don't use the word very or the word a lot. You repeat it. You say it again. You repeat yourself. And when it's said three times, you know that this this is something extraordinary. So God is not just holy, 
He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The holiest thing there is. Now, just a, a bit of a warning. I'm going to tell a story with a bit of a gross factor. So, if, so it's kind of a trigger warning if you're easily grossed out. I don't know what you do with that warning, but don't say I didn't tell you. Uh, when I was a young kid, I went to the beach with my family and somehow, I don't know how, I got a grain of sand embedded in my eyeball, deep, deep into my eye. Like you, I know you're freaking out now, but I did say a warning. And I had to go, unsurprisingly, to the doctor to have it removed. I actually had to go see an eye surgeon. Uh, and it involved a very long pointed metal stick uh, to dig out said offending uh, grain of sand. Uh, and afterwards I had to wear an eye patch, which when you're about seven or eight is awesome because you think you're a pirate. Uh, and it was kind of cool at school because everyone wants to know the story. But what happened when I took the eye patch off after a couple of days was, uh, it's in the middle of an Australian summer, Everything was so bright, I had to continually cover my face. It was, it was so overwhelming, it actually hurt. My eyes would tear up and, and I would recoil from just ordinary light. And that is what's happening here in this story. God's holiness is so overwhelming, so all-encompassing, that these seraphim, who are heavenly creatures, whose job it is to praise God 24-7, they are so overwhelmed that they cover their feet and their faces. It's too much even for them. That is how great God's holiness is. And fourthly, God is terrifying in his glory. Now the word glory is kind of a strange word. At its essence, it kind of means weightiness or heaviness, or permanence, things that are, that are deeply real and important and eternal. Everything else in comparison to something glorious feels light and flimsy and fleeting and temporary. Now back when I was at uni, uh, I played American football. And you're not, you're not surprised, I can see that, you're not surprised when you look at, at my build. Uh, I was actually even lighter then than I am now. Uh, and, and often we would have to do tackling practice. And I remember very clearly the day I had to try, and let me emphasise that word, try, tackle my mate Manu who was on my team. Manu was 6 foot 4 and 140 kilos and we had to line up 10 metres apart, and he would run at me. And my job was to stop him. He was, in this story, glorious, heavy, weighty, permanent. Me? Not so much. So what happens when something glorious meets something inglorious? Well, let me share from experience. You get knocked over. That is, there is nothing I could do to stop the weightiness of Manu shaking my world. Literally. Though I, I did tear his sock and that, and that was the... <laughs> he thought that was hilarious. 
We use this language when something big happens, don't we, the idea of being shaken. In those recent storms, people spoke of how it sounded like a train was going past or the whole place was shaking under the the noise and, and the terrifying reality of the storm. Even when a tram goes past my office, I can hear the rumble and it shakes the building. When glory is around, things shake and move. And look what happens at verse four, in verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. The, the idea of smoke, by the way, it's, it, it's not that the temple was on fire. Uh, smoke is a symbol of God's glorious presence. If you know the story of the Exodus, the, the, the tower of smoke that led God's people uh, in the story of the temple, the, the, a kind of a pillar of smoke descended on the temple to show that, that God was there. See, God's glory, we're seeing in this vision, is a full body experience. It it is sight and it is sound and it is smell and it is touch and it is shaking. God's glory is overwhelming in every sense and in every sense that you have. When God comes in glory, the earth shakes all the way through the Old Testament. Just a a few quick examples. Exodus 19, God comes down on the mountain, the whole mountain shakes. The Psalms are full of this language. Just two quick examples. Psalm 29 verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. Psalm 99 verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. It's almost like this is a psalm based on what happened to Isaiah. See, friends, we may be happy with a concept of God, but the reality of God is something entirely different. See, friends, we should never settle for just a concept of God. When we have a concept of God, we shape it. We are heavier than it. We are more glorious than the concept. We arrange it, it's safe, it's our agenda, it's our words. But to have an encounter with the living God means to be powerfully shaped by his glory, to be shaken by it. It arranges you as much as Manu rearranged me. God is heavier than us, more glorious than us. It is his agenda, it is his words which have authority. Friends, to have a true encounter with God means and can only mean that you are shaken, shaken by his glory. So how do you know whether you've had this earth-shattering moment? How do you respond? Well, have a look at what Isaiah does next. You are deeply and humbly broken by your sinfulness. Woe to me, for I am ruined. Woe to me, for I am ruined. 
That is Isaiah's response to being shaken by God's glory. Not, wow, God's glory, let's, let's take a selfie. Right? Let's post about this. Let's, talk, let's write a song. I've been waiting for this moment my whole life to have an encounter with God. That's just, woe to me. I am ruined. I'm dead. I'm flat on my face. That's the best I can do. In fact, that word woe, if you're a prophet and you say the word woe, it's actually a word of curse. It's to say to somebody, you are about to face God's judgment. That's what prophets say when they say woe. And Isaiah has been saying a whole lot of woe. He's been woeing it big time in the previous chapter, in chapter 5. Six times he's been saying woe. He said, look, woe to the greedy. Woe to the drunk and lazy. Woe to the mockers. Woe to the perverted. Woe to the self-conceited. Woe to the lawless. And now it's woe to me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me. So why does Isaiah mention his lips? It's a slightly unusual turn of phrase, isn't it? Well, the words of of one's mouth reflects what's going on in our hearts. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 verse 18 says the same thing. He says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile a person. What we say reveals the nature of our hearts and when we look on social media it is not hard to see what happens when people's hearts speak. And so in the presence of the holiness and gloriness of God, Isaiah just recognises his own sinfulness and he confesses it by acknowledging that his sin has made him unworthy to be a prophet. Because after all, what's a prophet's job is to, to speak with his lips. But how can he do that? Because his lips are unclean. In fact, he can't even join the seraphim in praising God. He can't even say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So unclean are his lips. All he can say is, woe to me, I am ruined. And it's not just him. It's all of God's people. To have a true encounter with God is to be shaken by God's glory and to humbly confess your sins, to realise you are unworthy, to say, woe. In Luke 5, we get a glimpse of this when Peter temporarily, momentarily gets a glimpse of Jesus' power and glory. And what I love about Peter, Peter's super keen. He's like the, the nerdy, he's, like, he's full of excitement for Jesus. But at this moment, he gets a glimpse of who Jesus truly is in, in Luke 5 verse 8. And it reads there, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. It's the same for Isaiah, it's the same for Peter, it's the same for you and me. When you encounter the reality of God 
in his glory and holiness. There is no place to stand. You can only fall down in repentance and confess, woe to me, I am ruined. That is the only response available to us in the presence of a holy God. See, there is no doubt in Isaiah's mind that he is about to face death. And what happens next pretty much confirms his fears. But yet, thirdly, we see here, he has a radical encounter with God's grace, unexpected encounter with God's grace. This is in verses 6 and 7. I want you to imagine that this has happened to you. You've come into the presence of a glorious God. You've realised you're sinful. Uh, You realise that you're about to die and then this happens. One of these terrifying angel seraphim flies at you with a live coal in his hand which is taken from tongs from the altar. By the way, there's OH&S rules in heaven as well, by the way. Are you saying, oh, great. I'm about to be cleansed. This is great. Now, Isaiah is expecting death, swift and final and just. See, fire in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's righteous judgment, his anger and wrath against sin. That's the symbol of fire. So when fire comes at you, delivered by one of God's angels, you're thinking this is it. But then in chapter, verse 7, something radical happens. Isaiah doesn't die. That's it. That is radical. That is unexpected. And there's a bit of humour here too, actually. In verse 7, when, uh, when it touched, uh, uh, when it, uh, with it, sorry, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. As if you kind of didn't notice at that point in time when an angel brings a fiery coal to your mouth and you don't realise it. He's so overwhelmed it feels. But then, then the seraphim says this, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah's guilt is removed and his sin is atoned for. His lips are now clean to do God's work. Not consumed, which is what he was expecting, which is what everyone would expect, but cleansed. He doesn't need to say woe anymore. Isaiah receives grace. His sins are atoned for. They are no longer held against him. And it's the same with us. We come to God shaken by his glory, humbled by our sin, and receive grace. And fourthly, we see that Isaiah is a transformed man ready to serve. Ready to serve. This is verses 8 to 13. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And what I love about Isaiah is he doesn't wait to hear the job description. He just says... Here I am, send me. Not woe woe is me. Here I am, send me. Can you see how transformed Isaiah is at this point? 
If you've ever done any uh, work with little kids, like lower primary kids, you know, sort of under 10-year-olds, they are so keen to please you as a teacher. I remember I used to teach scripture in schools and I have a year two class and I say, okay, you two, I have a question. And the entire class, without fail, would put their hands in the air. So I haven't even asked the question yet. Or I'd say, I have a job to do. Vroom, they're sitting up really straight. You know how the little kids sit and they try to wiggle to sit straight and they, they shuffle forward. Here I am, send me. I haven't even told you the job. What's going on here? See, Isaiah has been so shaped by God's glory and by God's grace, he can't help but serve. It's second nature now. He can't help it. Send me. I haven't told you where to go yet. I don't care, says Isaiah. Send me. Once you've encountered God's glory and God's grace, you cannot help but wish to serve him. Now, I've been reliably informed by Wikipedia that the distance between the sun and the earth is 152 million kilometres. And if you're an astrophysicist, feel free to correct me on that, but let's, let's say that that's generally right. Now, I want you to use your imagination. Uh, if, you have, if you haven't got an imagination, by the way, that's okay, you can just pretend. Uh, that you could reduce the solar system so that, that... That was a joke, by the way, that no one obviously got. Uh, use, come on, use your imagination. Uh, that you were reducing the solar system so that the gap between the sun and the earth is one piece of paper thin. So, the, you know, 0.1 millimetre. That's the gap between the sun and the earth. Now, the nearest other star than our sun would be 21 metres away. That's kind of like the front of church to the back of church. The edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, is 500 kilometres away. You would need a border pass to get to it and spend two weeks in quarantine just to visit the other end of our galaxy. And friends, there are billions of galaxies in our universe. And the scriptures say that the Lord Jesus holds this universe together by the power of his word and in the palm of his hand. You with me so far? Is this the kind of person you invite into your life to be your assistant? To serve you? To be available for you? To fit into your timetable? See, friends, Isaiah doesn't say to, to God, We've got a job. Great, look, Lord, I'm really busy at the moment got exams coming up. Maybe we could, we could pray about it and I'll, I'll get back to you in a few weeks' time. Here I am, send me. See, friends, if you want to be radically available to serve God, to shape your life around God's agenda, you need to be shaken by his glory and redeemed by his grace. If you're not keen to serve, it means... You have not been shaped by his glory or shaped by his grace. See, we haven't got a timetable problem or a busyness problem. We have a failure to see the glory of God and the grace of God problem. Here I am, Lord, send me. And Isaiah is sent, by the way, on a seemingly impossible mission. 
Do you remember remember the mission that God sends Isaiah on? It's in verses uh, 9 and following. It's what God says. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, so far so good. And then it gets worse and worse, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of these people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What a tough message. That's, I've never seen a church use this as their vision statement, right? Here at St Jude's we're all about uh, closing eyes, closing hearts and making hearts callous and dull. What's going on? They're challenging verses, aren't they? What's going on? Well, friends, these verses are really important. In fact, they're repeated and quoted in the New Testament on numerous times, often on the lips of Jesus. So here's the problem that Isaiah faces. First, the problem is this. God's people can only be brought to repentance by the prophet saying to them, repent and believe, turn back from your sinful ways and turn to God. That's the message. You face judgment. But as they hear that message again and again for the second, third, fourth, fifth time, what happens is rather than repenting, they actually become increasingly hardened in their resistance to the message. See, God is teaching Isaiah and us something fundamentally important here. The problem with the human condition is not our ears. It's not our eyes. It's not our intellect. It's our hearts. It's our hearts. Our hearts are so stubbornly sinful that when they're rebuked, when they're told of of oncoming judgment and given a chance to repent, they actually get harder. The Puritans used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And the problem is that Israel have hearts of clay, of stone, it says in Jeremiah. How do you soften a heart of stone? Do you keep putting it in the sun? Well, it's not going to make a lot of difference. In fact, it's going to get harder. Can you see the problem that that Isaiah has, uh, through this teaching, has made evidently clear? The issue is going to be with the human heart. But that raises another problem. Well, what then's the solution? How on earth are human beings going to get a change of heart? Because our, without a new heart, our old hearts just become more stubborn and more religious and more self-righteous. In other words, God has to do something radical. Human beings can't do it for themselves. We can't earn our way. We can't do it ourselves. Our hearts are just too hard. But what we shall see is that God can actually give us new hearts. Hearts that are awakened to his word and respond to his grace and embrace that wonderful truth that our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for. In other words, there's going to have to be something supernatural. God's going to have to reach in and do something radical for his people or they're doomed. He's going to have to act. Israel can't do it themselves. 
And in verse 11, Isaiah asks, look, how, how long do I have to preach this message before God acts, before you ask God? And God's answer is seemingly depressing. He says, look, their blindness and hardness of heart will continue until the land is ravaged, it's ruined, it's destroyed and God's people are taken away in exile. They face judgment. Is there any hope then? Well, when all seems lost, we have at the very end of verse 13 this little glimpse, little glimpse of hope, a little flash of hope. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. It's a picture of a forest that's been devastated, been destroyed, but yet from the oak and the terebinth, two trees, there's, there's a little seed that's been planted and it's growing out of this stump, a, a little bit of green leaf, a little picture of hope. And we're left kind of waiting, what, what, who or what is this seed? And in a few chapters' time, we get a really big clue. And I'm not cheating, by the way, because we're looking at Isaiah in chunks, so I'm not stealing anybody's Sunday here. But in chapter 11, verse 1, this, this kind of big piece of the puzzle comes, comes heaving into view. And it says, A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The stump of Jesse. Jesse is, of course, King David's father. So there'll be a king from this line of David who'll somehow be able to restore God's people, bring deliverance, give them new hearts. This promised seed will be some messianic king promised by God as the picture of this seed is built throughout the, book, uh, throughout the different books in the Old Testament. Somehow in the future there will be a king who can do what this prophet can't who can give the people soft hearts. And of course we have the wonderful uh, uh, truth of knowing who that person is. You see, that promise, that little seed, finds its fulfilment at a later time, hundreds of years later, when once again the temple is shaken. And once again, a man cries out in woe, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am ruined. When this man faces the full wrath of God, the holy fire of God's judgment, even though his lips they were not unclean. But he was the only person with clean lips. He was the only person without sin. It was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet because he took the full wrath of God, yet because he cried, Woe to me, I am ruined, it means that our guilt is taken away and our sins are atoned for. That was the solution, the missing part of the puzzle in Isaiah's vision. He knew he was forgiven, but he didn't know why. He had to trust God. We know why. Because somebody else bore the cost of God's righteous anger. Which means, friends, 
your sins, your darker sins, your deepest guilt are taken away and atoned for. Do you know that? Do you know that? And what that means is we actually have a radically different approach to the throne room of God than Isaiah did at the beginning. We can approach the glorious throne of God not in fear of our lives, which sounds extraordinary. We just have this picture of God's terrifying glory. But don't take my word for it. Take Scripture's word for it. Hebrews 4.16 Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Do you hear what, what the author of the Hebrews is saying there? Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence in the great words in him, bold I approach the eternal throne. Not timidly, not in fear of death or judgment, bold, confidence. How on earth can you do that? Well, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can you see how the Lord Jesus Christ radically changes and shakes our world? We see God's glory and are shaken. We confess our sins. We are forgiven. We go out to serve and we have a God who we can approach with confidence. A God that we can join with the seraph and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm going to pray and we're going to do just that. We're going to sing, holy, holy, holy. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are extraordinarily glorious and holy and righteous. And in Isaiah's vision we are struck by the enormity of who you are and the, sinful, uh, the sinfulness of who we are. Yet, Father, we thank you that extraordinarily we receive unexpected grace in the Lord Jesus that we can know for certain that every sin we have has been atoned for, that our deepest guilt has been taken away and that we can approach your throne not in fear of our lives but with confidence in the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.